0: Weekly
1: Weights with Burke and Hayes. We lift the weights and go on dates. And we are mates that educate and conversate. And it's our podcast. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Kablam. It's Weekly Weights. It's episode 84. I'm Will. With me is Alex. And joining us for the third time is Jamie Smith of Melbourne Strength Culture. Jamie, do you want to say hello? Hello, thank you for having me again. I am the Australian podcast whore. <laughs> we were going to get there and say it, but he said it himself. How many podcasts so, have you been on in the past? It's one of those things months? where you just um, you just hammer yourself before anyone else gets a chance, and then you just put it all out there. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. How many have you been on in the past month or two? Uh, if you if you count strength culture, probably there's probably about seven podcasts out there. In the last month, with my my face rolling around. Good grief! So you do get around, and worst thing is you went on our Arch Nemesis podcast peak speak, didn't you recently? I did. I was meant to go on two weeks in a row. I was so good on the first one that they wanted me again. But I was meant to go two weeks in a row, but then Sherry got food poisoning for the second one. So just the one episode where I sort of recapped
0: uh, the competition with Will Crozier over in over in America with Thomas. Yeah, compared to them, you're very organised. So I'm sure they'd want you on again. Fantastic.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> Going in hard and personal. Yeah, I hope Sharon got that food poisoning from eating shit. Am I right? <laughs> All right. So we've got Jamie on primarily to disc peak speak um, But as a secondary thing, we want to talk about injuries in powerlifting um, and what causes them. So the initial idea for this episode was to talk about just the role of symmetry or whether symmetry as an ideal is important in powerlifting. And that opens up this sort of broader can of worms of what is it that actually predisposes people to injury? How can we reduce or mitigate injury risk? And how can we um, how can we manage those risk factors in our training? Jamie's fresh off delivering a really good talk about that at the Australian Powerlifting Summit down in Melbourne, hosted by our friends at JPS. So we thought we'd, yeah, open that can of worms right up and dive into it. So Jamie, do you want to go straight off the bat and talk quickly about what um, whether symmetry itself is desirable or important, and then what things we maybe ought to focus on instead, if at all. Yeah. Firstly, I'd just like to preface the entire podcast with: I am a strength coach. I'm not a physio. I'm not an osteo. I don't. Um, I don't diagnose. It's not my scope, and I will highly recommend that any strength coach that is finds themselves in the position with dealing with people with actual injuries like limiting their training potential uh, painful presentations to find a good circle of allied health to bounce around with and obviously learn and and know your scope because it is a topic that I enjoy talking about it's something that I would say that I'm quite passionate about being the injury space in general for lifters Uh, however I think people because I get it all the time people come to me like oh you're sort of the injury guy in Melbourne like how can I help Like, can you help me? Like, what the hell's going on with my glute? And quite often, I just come back to the same framework of decisions that that I follow to improve injuries from a strength coach perspective. So there's no diagnosis. There's none of that. But I do like to talk about it. I, I do like to read the research on it. And I did present back at the Australian Powerlifting Summit with some really good feedback. So I'm happy to discuss this in general. But I just want to preface this whole episode with that just to do my due diligence at the start. Um, but this idea of symmetry, like I know Burks, like you and I have spoken about it a lot. People would like send you a message on Instagram or whatever and be like, oh, uh, my, my right leg uh, locks out a little earlier than my left leg on something. Or my elbow seems to tuck more on the bench press. Or my bar part, my bar isn't straight. Like, do you guys get these sort of questions often? Literally every day. Yeah. It's, and I, and I can see why. Like when you look at the top lift, like majority of the top lifters across the world, they're efficient people. They they they've got short ranges of motion. Their their lifts look nice. Like there's not many Sean Noriega's walking around who squat with their feet literally east west and their hip. It looks just like so un, unnatural to anything else that we've seen. So. Um, I can see why these lifters feel the need to chase this perfect symmetry within their training. However, when you look at the research on pretty much injuries in general, a lot of the biomechanical stuff doesn't really uh, line up as linear or like as correlative to injuries as we would like. Uh, And there are some bigger rocks that we could probably chase with our prescriptions and our training programs and our our sort of management through both healthy uh, parts of your training, but also when you encounter injuries or when you encounter these things. Um, So in terms of asymmetry, we know, and I discussed this last time with, or maybe the first episode where we talked about bracing or or the core, can't really remember. I don't know if you guys have a, a history of the episodes, but We talked about like the internal organs within the human body are asymmetrical in nature. Like they are, we are inside our bodies, we are asymmetrical. The human population is not this perfect symmetry of left and right side. Just some of the key ones off the bat, our right diaphragm dome is bigger. The right tendon of the diaphragm is bigger. It has three attachment points down the right hand side of the lumbar spine. We're on the left hand side, we only have two attachment points and that's mainly because of the placement of the liver on the right hand side and the heart on the left hand side. So we get this sort of warping of the diaphragm within our trunk and then also this the intestines down through the abdominal cavity uh, are different. We have lung lobes, uh, so we have two lung, uh, three lung lobes on the right two lung lobes on the left so on the inside we have all these internal forces that just are asymmetrical in nature but then when we extrapolate that to the external body we're all probably have a favorite side like i'm right-handed most of the finer motor skills i'm going to do with my right hand and then when i'm going to try and attempt that with my left hand i'm completely like I can't do anything. I can't write my name with my left hand, but that's just because of the skill set that I have created with my right hand. But then if I put a fork in my left hand, I can be very accurate with a fork and pick up food and pick up a pee and put it in my mouth. But then if I put the fork in my right hand and try and cut with my left hand, all of a sudden I don't have that control anymore because the human body is incredibly adaptive and, and learning processes that are asymmetrical because we live in an asymmetrical world and we have an asymmetrical body. So for the idea that everybody should be able to lift a barbell that's bilaterally loaded and have pure perfect symmetry just doesn't really add up. When we look at it from a logical or, or, or just like a, what was, what's sort of b where It's just like a, this equals this equals this. I don't know the exact term. But logical. Yeah. When we look at it in that sort of perspective, like it, it, why do we expect that everybody should lift with a perfect symmetry within these three power lifts. So what what do we what can we actually do about this sort of stuff? So there's definitely some like biomechanical analysis that you could look at for the hip and just sort of look at your movement potential. So what would be one thing that you would identify or what is one question that you guys get regarding this regularly? I know Burks, like you struggle with the bench press mainly. Yeah, so the two most common ones I see are bench press, like either either uneven shoulder position or one side locking out slightly earlier than the other and in the squat it's sitting into one hip especially hard yeah that would probably be the main one or feeling like one foot carries a little bit more low so sitting into one hip or extending one arm earlier in the bench they're the two biggest cool so let's 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 take the hip and the hip shift idea so Dr. Quinn Hennock of Juggernaut, he, well, when he was sort of more involved with Juggernaut, but now he's really just a clinical athlete. He did a really good episode of what the hip shift could be and what are the factors that may be contributing to a uh, the whole of your squat favoring or biasing either the left or the right side. And, and we can go through just the, the sheer number of reasons why somebody is controlling that and what we could actually do to improve that. So with a hip shift, if we start at the floor, we could think about like an ankle dorsiflexion range of motion. So the ability to get one knee forward past the toes compared to the other knee. So that is definitely something barring a passive restriction. So like a bony block or something within the front of the ankle that we may be able to improve. We can improve dorsiflexion. But the biggest thing that you could do with that is just go and assess your knee to wall passive uh, passive length of dorsiflexion So how far can I move my knee forward My left side compared to my right side We can then move up the chain And do the same thing with a hip How much hip flexion do I have On my right side compared to my left side How much hip adduction do I have On my left side compared to my right side How much hip internal rotation Do I have on my left and right side Because they're all the things that we, are, that we Need to be able to express In the bottom of the, of the, the squat So in terms of biomechanics, they're the things that we would go and analyze and and if you have a glaring weakness in one of those or a glaring difference between left and right sides and it's something that you feel you can improve, then definitely let's go and attack that and try and make this squat a little bit more efficient. But more often than not, what you get is, oh, my ankles are fine. They're pretty much, they have a very similar function in terms of dorsiflexion. Uh, My hips are quite similar. We have very similar ranges of hip flexion on both sides, adduction on both sides, and internal rotation on both sides. So then what else could we be looking at in terms of a hip shift? So barring the skeleton, we can go to the muscular system. Do I have a stronger right leg compared to a left leg, something like that, where the body automatically wants to sit into the right hip because my right glute is stronger than my left glute, my right quad is stronger than my left quad, my right adductor is stronger than my left adductor or something like that. So we could get a presentation where we have a stronger right leg compared to a weaker left leg. What would be the answer for that? It'd be the same as anything else. All right, I need to strengthen my left leg, identify, what we need to improve on maybe hypertrophy so actual muscle atrophy or hypertrophy on the right hand side might tell you a little bit of a a little bit of a a route to go and attack something uh, that we do a lot of here is like fatigue testing so you would choose something so like for a quad we might use a single leg leg extension and Choose a weight where the the right leg will fatigue pretty much a max RM10 at about 10 reps and then assess the left leg. And sometimes you get a very big glaring weakness between the two. You might get like 10 reps easily at at an RP8 on the right leg and it's like two reps on the left leg. And definitely when we put that within the system of a squat, maybe it's not going to present with that big glaring weakness, but it's something that we could probably go and attack with the squat itself. And that is go and improve specific muscular strength and hypertrophy so that they can get utilized better within the system of squatting and you could break that out with any muscle that is relevant to the squat glute uh, abduction strength leg extension even just like hamstring and hip extension strength Uh, and there's a whole battery of tests that you could do to try and analyze that itself Uh, again going down the asymmetry of the squat we talk about bracing some people just don't know how to brace. And I know you talked about this on your uh, Q&A either yesterday or the day before, Will, but uh, bracing can be fantastic. When you do a really good brace and you and you properly support the hip structure from the superior aspects, we get a really good uh, potential to be more symmetrical within a squat. So there's a whole bunch of biomechanical reasons why somebody might be presenting with a hip shift within a squat, but is it something that's really going to cause them injuries? I don't see that as, uh, as an issue. I definitely used to look at it a lot more, but now, and with the way the research is going, this biomechanical uh, application to injury and predicting injury and being a big, big risk factor for injury, it's just not the way it is. Does that kind of make sense? And we'll break that out as we go, but yeah. That was just one example, and I could talk about the hip shift. And I've got a video on our YouTube channel that breaks out and adds to the conversation from Quinn Hennock that has been quite successful on YouTube, going into some more reasons why. Feel free to plug your stuff as often as you want through the podcast, man, <laughs> by the way, if you just need to punctuate your chat with something. Um, yeah. no, I guess the big, the big overarching question then is like, how do, we, how do we delineate between things where we say, this isn't symmetrical but if we train constantly in these slightly asymmetrical positions, we're going to strengthen the relevant structures, have a movement pattern that is safe and gets stronger. And it's, it's broadly speaking fine, even if it's not symmetrical, how do we, how do we delineate between that and saying this is biomechanically inefficient and likely to be performance limiting. And so even if it's not necessarily an injury risk immediately, it's worth addressing. It's worth addressing down the line. So, the, the biggest uh, false dichotomy that people start to create when you break into this discussion on biomechanics and injury because the research doesn't support it. However, we as coaches and, and, and lifters, we identify that when you do efficient lifts, things move better, they're stronger, they feel better, you recover better. So there's this, this sort of like this disparity of what the research will tell you being that Biomechanics and injuries aren't as correlative as we think. However, biomechanics and performance are incredibly important. Uh, So there's a really good blog post by uh, Greg Layman, who was uh, one of Stuart McGill's researchers, who is now a lot more within the biopsychosocial space. However, he's a really good, I would call him probably the best middle ground who identifies when biomechanics really, really are important. But then also when, all right, maybe it's time to forget about the biomechanics and just go and get after some training outcomes and some training effects and try and improve the system as a whole. And and he talks about the biggest part of training or life where biomechanics matter is when high forces are involved. So for us with powerlifting, if you want to squat good weights, there's definitely an archetype that we can all sort of strive towards Uh, trying to progress towards in terms of our technique. And I think we can all identify what a good squat is and a squat that you can go and load and put a lot of volume in with your training and what a poor squat is where this is a bit dangerous, Uh, maybe this shouldn't be something that we strive towards. And we can all identify that gold standard squat that we want to get to. So it's really, really important that for performance, and and lifting big loads and handling a lot of stress and all that sort of stuff, all right, the way you move is probably going to matter. However, there are just as many people out there that are lifting like terribly, with terrible what we perceive to be terrible form, who aren't in pain, who aren't injured, who haven't had any injuries in the past, with just as many people who are lifting with awesome form. However, they just seem to never catch a break and, and tissues just break down. So we. I I definitely have seen that. Have you guys seen that as coaches? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So then it sort of gets into, all right, so when do we try to improve biomechanics and when do we sort of forget about it? Number one, I would say is what is your goal with lifting? If, If you're somebody who plans on competing at a national level, really driving, you put a high priority on your sport, Um, and you really want to get the best out of it, well, maybe going to get a coach and finding somebody who can do some hands-on, not hands-on, like manual work, but like get in person with you to try and improve and try and do some assessments and and work out some of those strategies. I think that's something that is really important because at the end of the day, to achieve these high, big force output uh, lifts, you're going to want to move in a good way. The good thing that Greg talks about it in terms of jumping off a roof, If I was to jump off the roof and land on my feet and absorb the load with my knees and my hips, I could jump off the roof a few times because my body is designed to absorb. The biomechanics of my body absorbs that high force when I land on the ground. However, if I jump off the roof and land on my shoulder, my AC joint's gonna blow, I'm gonna crack my collarbone, I'll probably knock myself out because my head hits the floor. In that biomechanic analysis, it matters. How we jump off the roof and land on the ground matters Hugely, because of the amount of force that is going through the body. And that's just an acute force. The same thing can be applied with your chronic force. So if we want to put out a high amount of force within our training program or whatever, the way in which we are moving does ultimately dictate the performance outcome of that. Another thing I would say is if it is symptomatic, so if you have... If you have identified, we'll use the hip shift. If you have identified that you're hip shifting because your left hip hurts, and it's a, it's almost like a, a like a crutch to get away from the pain in the left hip, you shift across onto the right hip. I think that is another one where biomechanics, right, right, where maybe this asymmetrical sort of positioning matters, and we probably should need to work this out and and go and find an allied health professional to help help identify what is occurring within the left hip and why your body is trying to bias away from it. So I think if it's a symptomatic thing, I think that's probably another big, big thing that we need to try and improve on, that asymmetry. But if you're somebody who has just, a good example of this would be Charlie, our head coach here. If you're somebody who has just always had the barbell slightly off-centre on his back, it's slightly to the right, every single time a new person comes into the gym and says, oh, Charlie, you're not in the middle. And Charlie turns around and says, no, this is the middle for me. Because Charlie has progressively increased his squat volume His performance has steadily improved over time. Um, It's never really caused any problems in terms of symptoms and and, uh, like pain presentation or anything like that. Why would we go and assume that Charlie's barbell needs to be dead centred on his back? He's just never trained that way. It's just the way it is. It's the way his body puts the bar on its back. It's where he feels the strongest and where he can then progress his training the most. When you put him in the middle, he feels like shit. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It puts a twist in his body and it, all of a sudden the barbell rotates. So what is symmetrical to Charlie? It's actually when the barbell is slightly off center. So I would say that if that would probably be my three things on when to differentiate when it is something that you're really, really trying to improve. If you've got a big glaring biomechanical deficiency because of an asymmetry all right, maybe that's something that we need to improve. If you're in pain and you have symptoms presenting every time you do something, maybe that is something that we need to go and improve and go and speak to somebody, get a coach, find somebody who can help identify something. However, if you're somebody who has just these slight little asymmetries that present themselves, there's no pain, there's no symptoms, you can handle training volume, you don't really have any poor outcomes as a result. I would say that Just keep going, keep building that up. And as we'll discuss in this conversation, there are probably some bigger risk factors for training injuries than symmetry of lifting. So that's a terrific segue. You've obviously had some practice hosting a podcast recently because you just teed us up perfectly. Because the next question is, if it's not symmetry then necessarily, what are the things that the research says we should focus on for risk risk management? Yeah. Uh, so have you heard of the acute to chronic workload ratio mm-hmm. yep cool so that's probably the, the only thing that we can really identify as true risk factors um the the research is heavily done on field-based sports and this is something that i discussed heavily in the talk um a couple of weeks ago but the 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 research in terms of numbers and empirical numbers sort of breaks down a little bit for strength application mainly because our idea of what work is, doesn't really correlate with what like a rugby player's work is in terms of like RPE for a session length. Can we just slow you down very quickly? So we have actually mentioned the acute to chronic workload ratio on the podcast before but if we could get like a good operational definition of it before we talk about these limitations, that'd be great for sure. All right. So the acute chronic workload ratio is you take an acute amount of work. Typically it is characterized by an arbitrary number with session RPE. So you would take the length of a session in minutes, you would multiply that by an RPE for the entire session. So if you think about like, a, we'll take rugby, uh, a one hour of a skill session, it might be like an RPE five for 60 minutes. And that creates like an arbitrary 300 minutes worth of work, uh, 300 points worth of work, sorry. And if they did 60 minutes at a seven RPE, all of a sudden it would be slightly higher again. So 60 minutes at a seven RPE, sorry, it would be slightly higher. So that is how you sort of accumulate your acute ratio. Typically it is one microcycle worth of work. So you would accumulate how much work you have done in one week as your acute ratio, and then you would put that acute number, sorry, and you would put that over your chronic uh, workload, which is typically a mesocycle. Most of the research will be four weeks. Some of the research is six weeks. Uh, However, you get this ratio, so you have like an arbitrary number, we'll say 1,000 units of work over 4,000 units of work, and that is your ratio of acute over chronic, 1 to 4. And the research will say that 0.8 to 1.3 in terms of acute over chronic is sort of what we want to, sorry, that would be a 1 to 1 ratio four total weeks of 1,000 points per week would be one over one, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so you're saying as like, if your chronic is over four weeks, you have to divide that number by four. By four, yes. The yeah. average yeah. Yeah. acute workload is. Yeah. Yes. And, the, and the, the the research says that the, the sweet spot is 0.8 to 1.3. So if your acute over chronic is within that window, you're getting the benefits of improving your performance through training and improving qualities of training. However, you're mitigating injury risk because you're doing enough that you're supported for your performance, but you're not doing so much that you can't recover from. Does that sort of make sense? Yes. And then the research can sort of go, it it sort of extrapolates and it creates this sort of U. don't know the exact term of what the curve is called, but it, it starts a little higher, it dips down and then it, almost turns into an asymptote where it just goes off into the into the stratosphere. So if you were doing under 0.8, you're at a higher risk of injury. And if you're doing more than 1.3, you're at a greater risk of injury as well. And we get this little dip in the middle where we can promote, uh, promote recovery, but we can also promote some adaptation and actually get some benefits from training. And that's sort of the sweet spot in the research. Again, Where it breaks down a little bit is the research is all in field-based sport athletes. I think the biggest sports are AFL, rugby, union, and cricket. So if I was to identify some sports that are probably on the complete other end of the spectrum to powerlifting, they would probably be the sports that I would identify. There really aren't much, like we are a single force output our training sessions are very long with very little actual work completed the session rpe's <laughs> that a powerlifter might come up with would be heavily skewed to high intensity work for some people and for other people's it would be heavily skewed towards moderate intensity bodybuilding style training some people really like and thrive on high intensity efforts other people really thrive on that bodybuilding style of training. So we can't really identify what a session RPE would be for a powerlifter. Some people will train for three hours and do 10 sets. Other people will train for two and a half hours and do 35 sets of something. So it's very hard for us to identify what a true session RPE would be for a lifting population. So there's a really good researcher called Frank Imparazelli, and he did a really, really good breakdown of where the acute and chronic ratio breaks down for our application uh, not just for sports in the strength field but just sports in general and how the research maybe have got, has got a little bit too much legs in terms of the actual specific 0.8 to 1.3 sweet spot um, so what, how I teach it and how I think it's really really valuable in terms of the acute and chronic workload ratio is that the concept is really really important The specific numbers are going to be individual to you and your contextual application of them. I have lifters who can handle slightly quicker progressions of workload and I have other lifters who it's a very slow moderate burn on how quickly we progress them. The concept of the acute to chronic workload ratio where it is most important though is the idea of training spikes and training floors and that is if you increase your training volume too quickly, so think about this as people coming off the Christmas break, they might have two weeks off, and then all of a sudden they go straight back into training, they go straight back into their high frequency, high volume sessions, all of a sudden that is a big spike in workload. The specific number on the spike probably doesn't matter as much as it's just a big spike, and that is going to increase your risk of injury. And the same way if you were to have time off, Um, and then trying to just resume where you're, it's it's the same sort of strategy actually. But yeah, if you were to have time off, whether it planned or unplanned, and then you just jump straight back into training, that's probably your biggest injury risk. So this idea that we slowly need to progress training over time is more important than the biomechanical or you're rounding your back slightly in the deadlift. And so I think embedded within that concept, because, because it sort of takes into account or the concept takes into account, um, session RPEs When we are reintroducing people to training perhaps when we're increasing volume we might need to make accommodations with the actual working intensities or if we're introducing people to higher intensities of training perhaps we can only do so at reduced volumes. So would you say that that's correct? Yeah. Definitely I track everything in hard sets per week though I don't track session RPE I think the education and, and this is what something why we promote RPE so heavily and it's not just per Post-set sort of objective, quote-unquote, subjective data uh, analysis or data accumulation. It is so that people begin the sk- developing the skill set necessary to evaluate what they are feeling. That was harder than this session. For some reason, my Wednesday session flattens me on Thursday. Why is my Wednesday session so much harder than my Monday and Tuesday? They they start to build that skill set because ultimately that is what matters when we're analyzing internal loading, what the human, what the individual is feeling and responding to far more than the objective. This many sets per week, this many sessions per week, frequency and all that sort of stuff. The internal loading, what the person feels, how they're recovering is far more sensitive than the objective data when accumulating this over time. So it's really, really important for us at Strength Culture and why we promote it so much is this RPE education, because it goes so much further than just the per set uh, response to, that was an RIR of 8.5, because that it gives the skill set to the person. So it's really, really important. So it's why we promote uh, that heavily and we combine it with hard sets per week, greater than an RPE six. So, and I that's think, how we would progress. I think that's really valuable in concept Although I could also see a few of my lifters who are maybe less inclined to do hard work, hearing you say that and thinking, oh, so if I feel a little bit shitty or tired, I'm likely to injure myself and I better not train hard. How do we draw a line between those two things? Well, yeah, this is where, so, so there's a really good meta-analysis, I don't know the exact name of it, but if maybe if we chat afterwards, I can send you the link to it. But it talks about, um, the, the how internal, so internal loading again, another key definition that I probably will need to uh, just outline here. So we have two forms of load that can be applied to a human and an individual. And the way I like to explain this is we can have a five by five at 80% prescription to two people. So we'll take Alex and we'll take Will. So I give, I, pre, I prescribe five sets of five reps at 80% for the squat for Alex. And I prescribe five sets of five reps at 80% of your squat to will. And what we can get is with the same external load prescription, we get a completely different internal load response for the body. So your internal load is your psychological stress, uh, how much sort of uh, breakdown or damage occurs in the tissues, Uh, So it's all the internal mechanisms that are a response to the external load that has been applied. So when we're talking about RPEs being how you're perceiving your effort, that is really, really, again, the meta-analysis. I'll make sure I find it and I'll send it to you. But it it, it spoke about how the internal loading measures of RPE, uh, wellness scaling, wellness scoring, session RPEs they're a lot more sensitive to the external load and they're a lot lot quicker to be adjusted compared to objective data points like HRV scoring, uh, morning heart rate um, and those external objective data points. They take a little bit longer to sort of accumulate the internal load response whereas a person knows straight away that was hard. That was, that was way harder than normal. For some reason, that that 200 kilo squat is completely different to what a 200 kilo squat should be. Where a HRV might, that starts to accumulate maybe like three or four days after the fact. So using a combination of both is really, really important. And again, this meta-analysis promotes that idea. However, they talk about the, uh, the understanding that internal loading measures and monitoring systems are probably a little bit more sensitive and a little quicker to react. And it's something that you need to educate your athletes on and it's something that we definitely promote. So it's probably finding a balance with those athletes who veer on the side of caution or or, uh, are more hesitant to push uh, some of their training volumes and some of their training loads because of whatever reason, their history, their their context. Um, So using a combination of both internal and external load monitoring could help that. Okay, and so when we talk about this acute to chronic workload ratio idea, is it is it predictive of um, of acute and catastrophic injuries or overuse injury or both? Uh, both. So this is where uh, the Frank Impalizzeri talk. I would again, maybe I'll send this and you can link this in the bio as well because he does it a lot better. He's actually a researcher and an applied uh, physical therapist here for a soccer team in Spain, I think. But. Um, this is where this is where some of the breakdown of that that concept starts to show its face. So the acute to chronic workload ratio has also been shown to increase uh, or to predict non uh, sorry sorry contact injuries as well. So even in sports where like a football, like you bump into somebody and that causes an injury, um, the AC ratio has also shown things in uh, or improvements or increases in that risk factor. So it shows both acute and chronic risk factors, but it also, for some reason can show contact injuries for whatever reason. So take it as you wish. Again, the numbers, I don't think are important. The risk, the, the, or by increasing, this much increases my risk by this amount. I don't think that's the right way to use the concept. I think the important way to use the concept is understanding that our chronic load should dictate how we can handle our more acute loading and that when we have spikes and troughs in our training prescriptions, we need to mitigate that as we come back in. Another really good understanding for that would be what I see with people with powerlifting competitions. The month prior to a powerlifting competition is typically the lowest volume. You've got the lowest amount of work in that month prior because of the fitness fatigue ratio or fitness fatigue model. We're trying to drop fatigue to express fitness. However, then they do their comp, they have a week off and they jump into the heaviest high volume program ever. All of a sudden, they're doing five sets of eight, six sets of 10. Where the month prior, they were doing two sets, two singles and two double back-offs. You get this chronic dropping a volume so you allow a big expression of intensity or comp day. And then all of a sudden you just fly up your acute loading because all of a sudden I'm in my off season. I need to, I need to drive my hypertrophy outcomes. What I would prefer to see is the same way that you taper into competition, you taper out of competition and you take a three to four week or a whole block to slowly accumulate some of that volume again, and then you can jump into your true off season. I think that's probably a really easy to understand application for it rather than, oh, my acute ratio is 1.6. I'm at a 2.2 increase of a hamstring strain. Not really.
0: Yeah, that's something that we've spoken about a lot before actually in our programming series is having that peaking phase and then having almost like a quote-unquote recovery phase for like three or four weeks beforehand before you can get back into doing... regular volume.
1: Yep. I think it's the, it's definitely the biggest thing people miss with comp phases, how to get out of a comp phase, what to do after.
0: Especially when you get stronger, it becomes hard to back up doing back to back comps because you need those couple of weeks or even a few weeks to sort of get you, get your body right enough to do enough work to actually get better again.
1: Yep. And something that I hadn't thought about, but this is something that Lyndon Purcell, uh, discussed in his presentation was that also in terms of like the hardware, so the enzymes and, the, and the, the, the the sort of processes that need to be in place to promote hypertrophy, they take a little bit of time to kickstart and actually start to generate that hypertrophy response. Don't just assume that all of a sudden because you've started doing five sets of 10 that you've started the muscle building process. It might actually take a little bit of time for the body to sort of fine tune itself to then becoming Uh, hypertrophy hypertrophy focused rather than being intensity so that as well where we can sort of build that up and give yourself the most the
0: best opportunity to get adaptation out of that phase that's a whole nother discussion coming out of it's almost like a lot of people go from like an on switch to an off switch versus like using a dimmer to sort of dimmer
1: yep that would be a really good analogy um I want to, I want to talk about the timeframes here because you just spoke about this idea of tapering into and out of comps. Um, but do does the same thing happen on shorter frames? So when we think about things like coming out of a deload, so if we have a one week deload back into a training block, is that a sufficient enough time away from your normal chronic training exposure to warrant a reintroductory week before we go back to our normal training volumes? does it matter how much we distribute our volumes across a week? Like, is there any reason to think that having a one squat day that's very hard as opposed, um, you know, and one very easy one at the other end of the week is more likely to be injurious than having two moderately difficult squatting days. Is there anything that we can draw from that? That's useful. Uh, again, I would say that the specific concept idea would be where you apply it. So, I personally, we have an intro block after a deload week uh, with certain people, particularly those people who struggle with recovery for whatever reason. Some of their lifestyle factors might be a little bit more stressful than others. That they, they don't really have the high priority of training because they've got a full-time job or a family and all that sort of stuff. So again, the context, the context, the context of the person needs to come into play. But also, you can start to accumulate data. So this is something that Mike, wrote, uh, Mike to Shira has in terms of his emerging strategies concept. And that is that you should be always analyzing the micro cycle. How is it improving? How is it adapting? How is how is the athlete recovering? What are the stress markers and all that sort of stuff? Because each individual have a completely different uh, internal loading that is going to respond in what we see and what we, what we can experience from a coach-client relationship. So I would say that this is something that you need to just work out with your athletes but have some sort of formalized data that you can extrapolate from, or at least uh, collect so that you can make decisions from. Uh, so in terms of coming out of a deload, as I said, we have some people that have a deload into an intro week. And that is because of our understanding of the acute chronic ratio. If your deload week causes a complete dump in your training volume, and then you just resume, well, technically that is an inc- that is the increased risk of injury. So we should mitigate that with a make it a slope rather than just a, a drop in and then out. Sorry for everybody that can't see my hand signals there. Um, so that would be one thing. And then when, in terms of having like a really intense day and a really easy day, see what the recovery is like. Hey, did you prefer that? Next train block, let's go two moderate days. What was your recovery like? What was the gains like at the back end of the comp? How was your internal loading? How was your stress markers? How was your sleep? How was your motivation to train? How was your recovery the day after? 72 hours after that high intensity effort. So there are all things, I'm not gonna say that doing this to this is gonna increase your risk of injury because I just don't think we have that data to support that. But I will say that learn to use yourself as an experiment. Try things and be critical in the way in which you evaluate the outcomes. Because that's probably more important than just being like, the research says this, I'm gonna do it this way. I hope that answers your question no it's a really good takeaway and I think if I were to sum up a lot of what you've just said it's that you need to be analytical and methodical in what you do and not necessarily make wholesale changes all the time but make targeted ones that are in response to your observations that be correct Definitely. yeah it's, it's the whole Mike Toshiro emergent strategies it's literally you are a science experiment Start to learn your variables. You are at your own data point. Work out what what drives adaptation, what causes an increase in, in recovery or a decrease in recovery or something like that. Yeah. All right. And way, way back at the start of this discussion, you spoke about the biopsychosocial model. Um, can you maybe give everybody a definition of what that is and explain how how that model relates to injury risk and to injury management yep so the biopsychosocial model i like to think about it as like a lens to look into any human experience or perspective and that is that we have influences that are so the bio being like biomedical so it's our actual physiology so this would be like your biomechanics but also like your tendon structure your muscle belly, the amount of muscle you have, how strong you are, like really tangible biomedical sort of things, physiology. And then we have psychological being sort of the internal dialogue in which uh, you have. So things like your previous experience, um, things like uh, your relationships would be falling under social. It's very hard to just differentiate the three, but, uh, so like your psychology of, of what your, uh, your view of any situation is, not just injury, not just training, but your whole life in general. And then social being your, uh, so like the social norms, what the education is like, what your previous education has been like, the things that people talk to you, how people talk to you, and also like how the way, the way you perceive things, but also almost like your environment around you and the other people that are influencing your system. So we have the bio being biomedical, psycho being psychology and social being your external environment and the other people around you. And those three things become an all-encompassing viewpoint of why somebody is experiencing anything. It's not just injuries. It's not just pain, it's your relationship with your partner, it's your relationship with your your mum or your dad, the way in which you view your motivation to work towards goals. It's literally everything, it's all encompassing. And the way in which that it relates to injuries and pain, and this is where the pain rabbit hole starts, and uh, I'm not an expert in it, so I'm not gonna try and sit here and say that I am, uh, is that the influence of somebody's pain presentation So we know there's definitely more than likely going to be an initial physiological response like nociceptors and and, and sort of like the the somatic cortex of the brain sort of picking up pain presentations and, and getting an efferent pathway down and that's where we get a pain presentation from. However, when somebody is in pain or they've gone through an injury process, we also have an influence of their psychology. They might lose a little bit of hope. They might change their goals. All of a sudden it might devalue the outcome at which they were sort of working towards. You could also have a really good physiotherapy uh, session where somebody uh, treats you as you're not broken and they've, they've created this idea that you are a robust person and a robust human. And that all of a sudden instills hope within your system. But in the same way, you could have a no SIBO response where somebody has said something like, oh, you've blown your disc out, you'll never squat again. And then all of a sudden you go through this spiraling thought process of I'm never going to squat again. That's devalued me as a person because I identified as a powerlifter and this person's now told me I can no longer powerlift. All of a sudden we get hypersensitivity of some of the physiological structures and now we get a bigger pain presentation. So really the biopsychosocial model is a lens that you can look through somebody's experience. That's That's how I teach it. And that is how I think it's the best way to apply. We can't dichotomize the sections and break them off because as soon as you influence one of the factors, you change the whole thing. You can't you can't identify that, oh, by doing a plank, I've got you out of low back pain. Well, no, there's a really good, um, uh, really, really good research uh, study on this, and they talked about scapular kinematics with people that present with subacromial pain, so pain underneath their collarbone when they move their arm up overhead, uh, underneath their AC joint. Sorry, when they move their arm overhead, and they had two groups. They had one group who went through an active, um, an active intervention, and that was some cuff strengthening work and some low-level motor control drills. A lot of the stuff that we teach and, and apply here at Strength Culture. And then the secondary group was like a massage and an ultrasound sort of um, strategy or intervention. And they followed these two groups and they got to the end and they re- retested them and the movement group, the motor control group had a decrease in pain presentation and an increase of life function compared to the other group. However, when they analysed scapular kinematics, they didn't change the way the scapulars moved at all. So there was no biomechanical change, and this is where we get into the biomechanics, the asymmetry debate. There was no biomechanical change. However, the group that were active in their recovery got a far better outcome than the group that were passive in their recovery. And the researchers go on to talk about how the active uh, group then had maybe they had better feeling of positive outcomes because they were moving, they were actually feeling like they were doing active things. They may be regaining some of that, that psychological Uh, Sort of viewpoint to improve the outcomes in life and they were the factors that influenced the positive outcome Rather than the biomechanics because they didn't change the scapular movement But we got a better outcome with the active population and that's pretty consistent with a lot of the research on rehabilitation Is that we don't really know why? uh, outside of strength we don't really know why most interventions work because the biomechanics very rarely change for individuals in life. We can change them on the gym floor, but when they go out in life, we're not changing the way somebody picks their keys up off the floor or whatever, but all of a sudden their back no longer hurts. So that was just the biopsychosocial model is a lens to look through and analyze what is influencing this person. And you can even think about it from yourself. Placebo and nocebo fits in there very, very uh, tightly as well. So when we, when we think about a powerlifting context, how important do you think our, our beliefs and our psychological state and stuff are about how we experience movement and perhaps how we experience, you know, quote unquote pain in training. And I'm, I'm especially thinking of clients who have beliefs that certain postures or certain ways of moving might be damaging, causing them to either lift with trepidation or to express discomfort or pain in lifting when in reality, there doesn't appear to be a lot wrong. How important do you think that is in our context? Uh, I think it's important in any context that we have an understanding of uh, that. that we're, so I talk about it in three pillars of, um, three pillars of any success with any outcome, whether it's physical, personal, job, whatever. But where there's three pillars to success One of them is uh, education. So we need to be up to date with what the, as coaches and as clinicians, or whoever the people are that that listen to this, they need to be up to date with our education. And and we need to know the best possible, in terms of like the um, evidence-based practice idea, having your personal experience, uh, what the clinical research says, and then also taking into consideration what the person, the individual and where they are and trying to meet them at the same level we need to have that and be able to educate our our clients or whatever uh, to better to, to get better outcomes on the other end that'll be the first pillar second pillar is expectations and it's the expectations of you as a, as a coach and then the lifter as a person what you expect out of the uh, exchange needs to match the lifters expectations If your expectations of what you want are up here and your lifters are all the way down here, you're not going to get a positive outcome at all. And then the third one uh, being your environment, and that is creating an environment both external and internal. So an external environment will be the people that you're surrounded with, the support circles that you're in, the, the... whether or not you feel supported by them in your training, but also with your outcomes uh, of just life in general. And then your internal environment being like your nutrition protocols, your sleep protocols, and all those low hanging fruit that we can generally take advantage of, most people can improve on. And those are the three key pillars. So when you have somebody who is presenting with uh, that sort of psychological barrier to their training or whatever, I'd like to think about it within those three things. I need to educate this person and show them some research that says, you know what, posture doesn't really mean shit in life. It's a very outdated. Um, it's a very outdated view of what causes pain, what causes injury. We can show them people like Adam Meekins, uh, Hannah Moves on Instagram. They're really two good accounts to follow that that really break down that old um, that old dogma that posture equals pain. So that would be the education one. In terms of the expectations, like showing them, hey, like, look, we can do these sort of movements. It's fine. Look at this person's squat. Look at this person. Uh, And showing them that I don't expect you to be presenting or, or executing these lifts at this high, high threshold because you can do these lower level things with some of these imbalances or asymmetries or whatever the person has, and you'll be perfectly fine. You've been lifting like this for six months. Why can't we just continue? And then also the environment being social in terms of support but also creating an internal environment for them to actually get some outcomes because they've got the software and the hardware inside them to actually produce positive responses so that would be sort of the framework i have and i think it's extremely important you can ask anybody that has entered that used to train by themselves and all of a sudden they start training in a group
0: and a group of supportive people and the person says it is so much better here i'm getting better outcomes i feel better i want to train like those psychological factors are just as important as
1: the actual physiological outcomes and again there's a lot of research to show that psychological impacts physiological probably to a bigger degree than we're willing to accept um, a lot of people have felt it and have realized it However, some people still don't quite understand that, that the way you think and the way you feel greatly influences the outcomes that you get from a physiological standpoint. So so I I think your examples there showed it quite well, but I'd love to give you a chance to reiterate. So as coaches, when we're talking to clients about things like technique breakdown or asymmetries, what would maybe be some good ways of talking about it and some bad ways? So, you know, say somebody presents you with a dramatic hip shift in the squat and a quite pronounced butt wink. I can definitely say the worst way to go about it is to fuel the fire and be like, you're going to blow a disc. You're going to jam your hips into end range and and bony spurs are going to uh, develop and cam lesions and torn labrums and all that sort of stuff. That is by far the worst way. We call that more than likely nocebo talk. Meaning that just by talking in that uh, in that way or in that direction with that sort of uh, context, you're probably going to create poor outcomes as a result of just that talking itself. So really shy, try and shy away from that uh, tissue damage, breakdown, um, like fire everywhere sort of view. And what would be a better way, or uh, language, sorry, what would be a better way to talk about that would be to talk about some of the research. If you don't know the research, go and read some. Just follow Adam Meekins for a week and you'll learn so much about all of this sort of biomechanical sort of understanding of pain and pain and injury and all this sort of stuff. So first of all, educate yourself as a coach so that you can impart some positive knowledge to the person and not be like dire in your response. but Um, I've sort of just lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So educate yourself so that you can educate the client and be like, look, you're probably going to be all right. Maybe we can try and improve some of this stuff from a performance outcome so that we can lift bigger loads over time because obviously that's why you've come to me. However, don't be scared that you're going to hurt yourself. If you've squatted this way for 18 months and you've made progress, there's a good chance that you're going to continue to make progress. Um, Again, where I would draw the line is if there's symptoms presenting consistently, or then maybe that's something that you need to try and um, try and work yourself around, and be like, why are these? Why is my left hip pinching all the time when I squat? Maybe that's something that we need to go after, rather than just be like, look, it's fine, it feels good, I feel safe, I feel strong, I can progress. That's a better way. Build that. Sort of vocabulary Rather than the You're going to damage this This is going to break down Disc bulge Disc protrusion Hip labrum Shredding up Blah, 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 blah Man, I think that's been, that's been a really informative chat I think we get your point Less fire yeah. and brimstone More more nurturing stuff. Yeah, definitely And you would be surprised And this is where the whole thing Of pain is in the brain And people talk about like Oh, it's just a perception Blah, blah, blah because it is perceived in the brain and then it's an efferent pathway and, and that's where you get the presentation from like your elbow or whatever. Um, but you can literally, you can change somebody's view just by talking to them. And, and this is something that our physio here, Dan Gadisi, who's the head physio of Palette in Australia, um, he does this all the time. People will present with something and he, he actually just like reassures them that what they're feeling is all right. It's not going to lead them to tearing their, patellar tendon or whatever for somebody with tendonitis. um, And that what you're feeling is all right, maybe we need to better manage this, but you get people that then leave that session and all of a sudden they just, they feel better. They go training and they're like, actually, you know what? It's not too bad because their psychological has affected the physiological outcome because of that biopsychosocial, because all influence everything and you can't dichotomize it into whatever you want to dichotomize it. But um, the way in which you talk, your language has, far more repercussions than you think. So being always veer on the reassurance education side rather than the dogma break this bash that. Oh man, I've had that exact experience with a couple of really good practitioners. Like this very week I was having really bad hip pain and back pain over the weekend, had a session on Monday morning and literally just from having somebody poke around in there and give me a couple of actionable things that made me feel a little bit better and say, okay, well, here's a path to getting you squatting pain-free. I was 60% better with probably no particular actual change in anything underlying. You know, it was purely just going, okay, well, like, I believe I've got a handle on this now rather than it being unknown. Whereas I think had I walked in and he'd said, oh man, you're really fucked. You got a comp around the corner. I'd be thinking about, I'd be thinking about pulling out of that. I'd be panicking, you know, like it really make a difference, even for people who know, know where they're coming from. No, it's massive. Get, get good people around you. When you find good clinicians, hang on to them. Uh, build that referral network because, and also just coaching network because ultimately that has far more influence than uh, just the X's and O's on a program or whatever. Man, I think this has been a really informative chat. And unless, Alex, you've got further questions, I'd love to leave it off there because I think that's a great way to cap it. We'll take a very quick break. And then before we let you go, we're going to hit you with our new segment, Underrated overrated or properly rated These guys will be right back
0: Welcome back to weekly weights episode 84 we're gonna hit Jamie now with our new segment overrated underrated properly rated Jamie you ready? I'm ready. All right, Jamie underrated overrated or properly rated
1: maroon 5 Underrated <laughs> the, the, the album Songs about Jane Is all time It is actually so good I was telling it Alex so good. I thought of this because you and I don't know if you still live with him But like your old housemate had your album of the week Or album of the month thing. It turned out one? to album of the Album of the first half of the year
0: We listened <laughs> to it not
1: stop It is actually that good I had <laughs> it back when I was When did it come out? We would have been 11 or 12 Hey
0: no, I was going to say, 05,
1: yeah, and it's got that iconic cover image of the—it's like a chick in red with like wavy hair and stuff, and it's a line drawing. But yeah, yeah, it looks like a like a, a, an abstract painting type type thing. But you have to you have to justify why you think they're underrated generally, because like normally if we say something's overrated, we say, well, this is what the general person thinks of it, and this is why they're wrong. So why why are Maroon Five underrated? Because uh, nobody talks about their original stuff anymore. Everyone just thinks about like their their newer, like, who's that? Uh, who's this? Like the stripper that sings now. What's her name? Cardi B. I don't even know if she's a stripper, but she just gives off that vibe. <laughs> yeah. Like like that sort of genre where they're all like just doing duets, not even duets, just pairing up. Like that sort of Maroon five, overrated, no good. People need to talk about the, the, new, the old era of Maroon 5 because that was unreal. So they're underrated because nobody talks about
0: their original stuff anymore. I'll th- back that. I think that's kind of hard to say though, because they're probably one of the most popular bands over the last 15 years. Probably top 15, maybe. <laughs> I think that'd be up there. Yeah. So but Alex, when was bands the bands last how- time you listened to songs about Jane?
1: <sighs> A while. Exactly. So go and do it. Listen to it, and tag me if anybody listens to Shiver. Tag me because that guitar is gives me shivers.
0: That is a good song.
1: Burke, should um
0: your band should play that at the next gig.
1: You know, we actually um we we practiced. We had this love nailed, but it was just yep. a bit too high for the singer. He was really struggling with it, um, and we hadn't practiced like transposing it or anything. So we just cut it. We we had it in the set list.
0: What, get a new singer.
1: Hmm. Lose our singer, get rid of him. Can you just take get him <laughs> a whole octave? Yeah, what, so he's singing like Barry White? Yeah,
0: that'll be a good version.
1: Yeah, maybe. All right, okay, Jamie, we'll accept that. So Maroon Five, underrated,
0: official, particularly
1: Shiver. Particularly Shiver. That I actually do recall that song, it's
0: a good one. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right, do you have, do you have one for us?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna do um, three rapid-fire fast chain food restaurants. Fast food chain, dude! Come on. Fast food chain. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're gonna help you. I don't even know how to say it. You have to give us a three, two, one countdown where we just yep. both say our instinctive response and then argue about it. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Number one, Domino's Pizza. Count us down. Properly rated. Oh. oh sorry. <laughs> okay. I'll uh, properly, really. I was gonna say slight over. See, I think Domino's pizza you, you get what you're given. Yeah, I agree. They're five dollars. Yep. They're they're fine for five dollars. Yeah. They're no they're not worth twelve dollars. Yeah, it's not, not crust pizza. I've all of your premises I follow, I don't follow your conclusion. They have a lot they have lots of options.
1: Yeah. Lots of sauce on all the pizzas. Yeah, but I think that leads people to perceive that they're actually good. Like if anybody goes on a Friday night as a treat to myself, I'm having dominoes, you are like I, barking mad.
0: I don't think anyone does that. I think they go, I've got I'm barking five, mad. I've got five dollars in my account. I want a pizza. Oh, if you That's go if you go do.
1: five dollars to my next paycheck or I'm having a party of 45, 10 year olds and I need pizzas on the cheap, perfectly fine but that's not what people do. People get themselves a Domino's pizza as a treat and that's a travesty. I
0: disagree because I think no one gets themselves Domino's pizza as a treat. I do. Yeah, this guy does. So that's pathetic. Talking no. to the,
1: man, the man. Which one yeah. do you
0: get? Do you get the the $5 cheese?
1: Yeah, or I get the pepperoni because it's five bucks. And, um, <laughs> or I get the meat lovers if I haven't eaten much during the day and I've, I'm just going to, do, Domino's,
0: my Domino's garlic bread Is the greatest thing in the world Yeah, that I would call underrated But the pizza's slight over I'm going to give it like a 15% over I think because the garlic bread's so good It gets you back to properly rated
1: Alright, we'll call it an official properly rated But that's like low confidence properly rated Next one yep. uh, KFC
0: Underrated
1: You two are Complete monks I'm um, not for underrating KFC. You gotta count us down, Jamie. Next time, Alex's oh sorry, no. Nah. Three,
0: agree. two, one. No, nah, I agree. Underrated KFC is unreal. K- KFC is so fucking good.
1: And like the varieties, actually, He's so cool. far over to me, it's not funny. Really? Yeah, it gives me diarrhea every time. No thanks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds like your GI tract is under equipped. What do you? What's what what the issue? What are you? Eat? What are you ordering? Doesn't matter. There's something.
0: One of them spices ain't ain't for me. <laughs> <laughs> no man, KFC is so solid. Dipping dipping chips in PAG is the, the greatest. Yeah, I'm with Alex,
1: sorry man. All right, no. one last go, please count us down this time. All right, I'm gonna say it and then I'm gonna say three, two, one. Okay. McDonald's, three, two, one. Properly, properly rated.
0: rated. Yeah, there we go. And why properly rated, Alex? Uh, vast menu. Yes. Good breakfast. Yep. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go underrated. I think it's properly rated. Slightly underrated. (laughs) Okay.
1: So basically you're saying there's huge positives and people don't appreciate it. Is that that the whole argument? Yes. I reckon huge positives. It's iconic. The people appreciate the positives. None of the things that McDonald's do except In fact, not even thick shakes. None of the things McDonald's do are they the absolute best at, but everything they do, they're pretty good at and you're always happy. And I think people go to McDonald's wanting what they get and thrilled with it and knowing that there's going to be sufficient options for them to be happy every time. It's smack bang properly rated and they're rated quite
0: well. I agree with everything that you said except for they do fast food breakfast better than anyone. Okay, yeah, that I'll back. So that puts them slightly into the underrated yeah, but I just think very slightly. Underrated. But
1: nobody, nobody I go, ever I goes literally but, go
0: out of my way to get Macca's breakfast every week. Yeah, okay, that says more about you than Macca's, to be honest, man. Maybe, maybe, but, but I'm the one rating
1: it. <laughs> sure, I gotta say, like sausage and egg McMuffin with a hash brown. Oh, that good. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, Jamie, what do you think? I just think I'm gonna in.
0: go there now and get one.
1: Uh, I'm, 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 I'm with Alex. It's slightly under. I don't think people appreciate just just how consistent McDonald's is. Well, I'll back that. We'll give it an officially slightly underrated, but slightly because they're like, I think they're close to proper. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, when you were in this, so Jamie was in the States recently, he just told us that, um, when you were there, did they, if you said, I want to go get some Maccas, did that mean anything to them? Uh, some, I'd say 50% of the time people knew what I was talking about. The other 50% were like,
0: Maccas? Answers. Okay Jamie I got a Quick American rapid fire Fast food questions Yeah okay. All right. Did you go east coast And west coast Did them both Okay What's better Five guys Or in and out Five guys Doesn't matter whatever you say Five well, guys are the best agreed Yeah Chick-fil-a Overrated Underrated Properly rated uh, Properly rated um, I would say that it, It's got a bit
1: of a cult following now And it's good but it's not like, this is the best, like, why is it closed on a Sunday? Like, oh, I need my Chick-fil-A, I can't wait for it to open. It's just like,
0: yeah, it's good. But So I'd say slide over, if not, yeah, slide over. Agree, I think, I think uh, Chick-fil-A is quite considerably overrated.
1: Oh, big. Okay, haven't had it yes. either,
0: so I'm I'm just listening. Have five guys. guys. Get five guys. Five guys on the Five Guys is good. That's it? Will Crozier yeah. loved Five Guys. Five Guys and the, the shakes from Five Guys.
1: Yep. <sighs> okay, Jamie, one more because we're on shakes and this is a passion for me. McDonald's, thick shake, or is it Wendy's that does the Quake Shake?
0: Not Wendy's. No, that's KFC. No,
1: no, the Quake oh, Shake the is, um, the Quake Shake is, what, Donut King, isn't
0: it? I don't know.
1: Oh, okay. What's the best thick shake? Mm, I don't really get thick shakes, man. I'm not a, I'm not a high dairy man. Uh, but if I was to get one, I would like just a shitty chocolate thick shake from McDonald's. Oh, that would I be agree, where I'd go. I agree. It's so good. Macca's, ch- I swear the thick shake, it must be, or oh, the quake shake or whatever, it must be Donut King. They used to have ones where they had a thick shake, and then they'd actually crush up the chocolate of choice and put it on top. So you'd get one that was like a crunchy, thick shake. And it was like, this is back in the peak fat birthdays. Uh, and it was, it was 90% ice cream with just like a lot of shock honeycomb topped with a crunchy bar. And you'd get that. As, a- mate, it was
0: unbelievable. Well, that's what they've got at KFC, the crusher. You can get the golden gates on Yeah, the but I was just I've had a crusher. Great. It's good, but it's not as good as that. I'm sure it must have been Donut King. The best um, milkshake, if you're ever in Sydney, go to North Sydney. Um, five points. Yes, they're good. Caramel, salted caramel, thick shake from five points. Very good. Very good. Anyway, we've nice. spent fast
1: food for like twenty minutes. Okay. Mate, this has been a very good and informative episode, particularly the part about fast food. I um, yeah. for people who want to get in touch with you and talk about talk about coaching, anything else that you've got on offer, and you know, maybe let us know your seminar dates as well, where can they look to find you? Uh, yes, so I, myself personally, probably the best way is just Instagram, jsmithculture, uh, and obviously the gym is Melbourne Strength Culture, and that's our website as well. I'll just put it in Google, you'll find us. In terms of just some of the other things, I'd say just the seminars, we, we put them up this week. So we have two seminars rolling in the first half of the year. We have our principles of performance, which is going through Day one will be all of our movement, biomechanics analysis, um, how we structure and progress movement and and improve motor control and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Very similar to the content we did last year. And then our day two of that principles of performance is purely programming. So we're gonna be talking about programming, how we think about programming, some of that bottoms up of viewpoint that we talked about, emerging strategies as of Mike Tashira's concept. Uh, So that will be in Melbourne, City and Perth. Uh, Sydney dates are the 7th and 8th of March. So all you Sydney people, please get around that. And then we also have assessing the strength athlete, which is only in Melbourne right now, but we'll see what happens. And that's on the 28th of March. And that is, we go deep into the acute chronic workload ratio. We go deep into the biomechanical analysis and, and movement sort of potential of athletes, strength athletes, obviously. And then also what we can do on the back end to improve that. So a lot of this talk today was around about what we'll be discussing in that seminar. So if you're interested in either of those, they're available on the website. So thank you very much. Unreal, dude. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's been a pleasure. Um, guys, I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT. I'm
0: Alex at Alex Hayes underscore process. We'll talk to you next
1: week.